I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the OMG MotoGP podcast post Qatar. And I mean, we've got to start, Keith Ewan, uh, the championship battle, Martin versus Banyaya, the sprint. It was suddenly looking very, very much like it was going Jorge Martin's way. But then, come Grand Prix Sunday, it all went wrong at the start. I'm worn out by it, I've got to say, with the way that to and fro. And I mean, Jorge Martin had a diabolical Friday. Nothing worked really well for them. They couldn't quite find the setting that they needed. And he looked all at sea. Then you saw the interviews that he did over the weekend with radio, television and the like. They obviously had loads of things to cover PR-wise at this point of the season. And he seems so relaxed. I mean, I love Pecco Magnaia and Jorge Martin. They they obviously grew up as kids, came through the Mahindra racing in Moto3 and so on and so forth. I mean, they've been around for, for a long time together. So they know each other really, really well. And the politeness and the, and the decorum that they show each other off track is, is wonderful. I mean, like it, it, it's got to be getting to you when, you know, if you go back in any rivalries, whether it's inter-team or whether it's, you know, your friend that you've, you've joined in racing years ago, it becomes spectacularly personal. But those two seem to have managed to keep some kind of maturity in there that, that is, is almost unheard of, really, considering the level of their rivalry at this point. But Friday was a diabolical day for Jorge Martin. Somehow they found a setting to work on the Saturday, and he just looked majestic. He looked so much better than everybody else. I mean, we're all thinking, well, there's no one going to match him on Sunday, providing he can get a tire to hang in there on the full 22-lap distance. Um, there's no way that he's going to going to get caught out. And then right from, as you say, as soon as the lights went out, the thing went sideways one way, then it went sideways the other way. It's like the electronics weren't hooked up. It's like the tyre wasn't hooked up. I mean, it's it's funny that Michelin put out last night a, a very brief statement from Piero Taramesso, who's their main man on site. Um, Piero Taramesso said that, you know, the tyre hadn't gone through any heat cycles. It was a brand new tyre. There wasn't something that was strange about it. It only travelled once or, or worse to that effect because that's always been the other um, slight issue that people worry about tyres that have been stacked in containers that have gone by ship to wherever they've gone to. And maybe they've, they've gone through some kind of process that's, um, that's a bit untoward regarding the tyre longevity. So sometimes it, that's a, 
it's it's a rumor whether it's an actual fact who the hell knows but tire shipping is a is a major thing because they, they don't fly them everywhere i mean some of these things are shipped out in advance um but piero taramasso said that um no that tire is a spot on tire and they they had no trouble with anyone anywhere else and yet jorge martin was adamant that he'd had a bad tire now that's a rare thing to be honest I'm falling the side of Michelin, and that's really unusual for an ex-rider to to be on the side of the the, the tire manufacturer because that's it, it used to be spark plugs and tires you'd always blame for a bad performance. And uh, you know, in this particular instance, I'm wondering it's very rare. Michelin, particularly, uh, uh, there are other manufacturers I'm not even going to mention names um, that that we've had the odd bad tire from. But Michelin, it's a rare thing. Um, so if it was a bad tire, it was it was fortuitous uh, for Bagnaia. Um, but then again, you know, the whole weekend really has got to be about Grassini. Um, you know, Fausto Grassini in heaven now, Let's, if there is one. Let's hope that um, he's watching down on Digia, doing the business, first ever Grand Prix, out of work. Rumours that he may go to VR46, but of course, VR46, Uccio, Alessio Salucci, you know, Valentino's best mate and the team manager, um, doesn't seem to think there's a place for him there. Um, so I've got to say that it's looking, even though he's gone and won his first ever MotoGP, which is a you know something that everybody sets out to do at some stage in their career. Bear in mind, it's only his second year in MotoGP as well, which I think that is also, I, I ranted on about Rory Skinner not getting a chance, really. Um, you know, Digi's on his, on his second year of MotoGP. He wins a Grand Prix in the best style possible and almost was pivotal in giving the Grand Prix championship to Jorge Martin because when he passed back Magnaia, Magnaia had a go at coming back, got sucked into a, a bit of a vacuum behind him and almost clipped his rear end going into the um, the, the first corner. Um, so it could have, he, he, Digi could have been pivotal in the championship as well, as it turns out that, that, that you know, Magnaia has obviously said his prayers and uh, got away with that particular manoeuvre. What do you think, what do you think has changed for Digi? Because, you know, he was at one point one of the slowest Ducati riders you know there was a reason I know Mark you know he's he's not being replaced by anybody it is Mark Marquez but he wasn't performing and then suddenly well flick of a switch Frankie Carcetti now Frankie Carcetti is a Englishman has worked with a lot of really good riders over the years and Frankie Carcetti um I saw an interview that he did with TNT with uh Susie and co and um it was interesting that he wasn't going to take much credit for the changes they've made to the bike but i think that what was significant in his conversation was that the changes they have made are minute they are in a different direction to the way most other people are riding or have gone to but i think that indicates just where motor gp is at you don't have like a raft of massive changes that the, the old you know the old shotgun remedy where you change everything on race day it doesn't work anymore they're tiny changes where you move the bike towards a a rider's style and and Digi's style and, and what he wants um, are different from from the other Ducati riders. So perhaps following the data of the other seven Ducatis out there wasn't the way. They found their own way and it's worked for Digi. Um, I think it's indicative of just how good Frankie Carcetti is, and of course Frankie Carcetti will be working with Mark Marquez next year at Grassini. Um, that'll be an interesting partnership when he goes. Bearing in mind that Mark Marquez is splitting up from Santi Hernandez, which has been a long, long lived. I think it's very smart, actually. I mean, if you remember, Valentino Rossi did exactly the same thing. Uh, dumped Jeremy Burgess, brought in a, a you know brand new crew chief that, that you know had worked in Moto Two previously and the like, and uh, 
and it made a difference. I think the, the good old adage, you know, change is as good as the rest. Well, I think it is when it comes to a crew chief as well, a new understanding, a new, a new pair of eyes, a new strategy coming in. So I think Frankie Carcetti moving away from Digi a little bit, um, you know, going to Mark Marquez next year with Grassini is going to be a good thing for, for Mark as well. And he needs it, judging by the way he's looking at the moment. But I think that, that I yeah. think the partnership between crew chief and rider really, I mean, right down to the sense of humour, you know, mapping eight. Ah, yeah, that was brilliant, wasn't it? <laughs> and then there's the four digits, the four zeros on the on the on the pit board, stuff like that. You know, you, you think, bloody hell, is all this code going on about? I've never seen that before. But it it's just that level of humour that they have. You know, mapping eight was apparently a, a, a you know the final five laps signal that they gave. And of course, every commentator, every worldwide, does that mean he's got to give the, the place back to Magnaia? You know, all those kind of comments, which were quite amusing. I enjoyed the, uh, on the board for, for Pecco in the end, after all that P2. Okay. Yeah. Well, P2 was okay. 20 points. Um, yeah. You know, uh, 25 would have been nice. Thank you very much. And yeah, and, and you, you pretty much, I mean, both Digio and Carcetti, both felt that they had a chance of winning that race. You know, that's how how close, how far they've come. You know, in the, we've been, we had a couple of dips, didn't we? I think we had a fourth place, um, you know, three or four rounds ago. And then it was, you know, a couple of eighth and ninths or whatever it was. And, and then this blast into Qatar. Um, I think that, I think the deals are done elsewhere. I mean, it's very rare you get to this stage of the year where there are saddles still available um, seats still available for somebody like Digi coming up with what he's come up with. But a great Valencia, you never know. I mean, if there was someone hovering over the paperwork with their pen, you know, the old um, factory will have just been pulling them back a bit from that. You know, hang on a second. Let's 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 see what Digi does in Valencia before we finalise this deal. Um, well, I thought it was it was really interesting what Carcetti was. I watched that interview as well, and, and he was quizzed, of course. How can how can Digi not, not be on the grid now next year? And, uh, you know, I think, Frank Cocchetti very much agreed that he deserves a, a place and, and sort of suggested that, you know, there are other riders in the grid that have been here for five, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe longer years who aren't really performing, well, but yet politics and, and chat, and that's how it works. The, and best, still here. the best one to come up with there, Harry, is Alasius Bargro. You know, you've got to say he's the oldest bloke on the grid, couple of kids, not doing the business really, although he, he's, you know, sort of, push the boundary a bit for him. You know, he looked like he might be able to make some kind of step this year, but he hasn't in the end. You know, he's getting bad flack at the moment. He's just been fined 10,000 euros for, for slapping. Uh, slap gates. Yeah, slap. I mean, I love it. I love it. It's been going on for ages. You know, like we've, we've had these kind of handbags that, you know, He's an emotive man, Alasius Barger. He's taken a fair amount of flack. I don't think that's necessary really in consideration. But but you, sh- you shouldn't like... No. No, slap a rider into, on not, while on a not bike. Not in today's, not in today's no. world. Yeah, in the past you would turn their ignition off as you went past, you know, or whatever it was. You, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Romano Fanati grabbed a front brake. Well, hang on a minute. We used to do that every bloody weekend. You know, you you uh-huh. grab your mate's front brake just as a bit of a giggle. I'm not saying for a second it should be like that. Now we're a pro sport and you don't muck about with that. And they're, they're the safety angle, of course, in today's world is is much enhanced. Um, no, he got. What he did was he got off lightly, in my view. I'm I'm making little of, of the offence, but I'm not really because I believe that he got off lightly. A 10,000 euro fine and six places on the grid. Actually, do the bloody... Do the, the stewards learn nothing in their terminology? That, that fine and that grid position penalty was for Qatar. 
everyone was saying, oh, I'm amazed to see him on the grid, you know, because he's hurt. Obviously, he was hurt himself a lace, so he pulled out of the race in the end. But, of course, he started the race because he doesn't go to Vettel. You know, he, he wanted to get rid of those penalties just in case they did carry forward to Valencia or the next time because, I mean, I've got the piece. Actually, I've got it in front of me, the the, the good old, um, as He's got the, evidence. the few pieces of homework that I actually do, just so I get the wording right. <laughs> So the action, a fine of 10,000 euros and six grid positions penalty for the MotoGP Qatar Airways Grand Prix of Qatar. Now, that for me is specific to Qatar, not a carried forward. It, it should say grid positions of the six, you know, six grid penalty positions for the next race he's in. Because if he was injured and he didn't do it in Qatar, me reading this says that it was a Qatar penalty and doesn't carry forward to Valencia. So um, if that is the case, and I haven't actually just checked on any other paperwork, so I might be completely wide of the mark, but I'm pretty sure that was a Qatar-specific penalty. If he hadn't ridden at Qatar, um, uh, he, he would have been penalty-free apart from the 10,000 euros when he gets to... And 10,000 euros, to be honest, to a factory man is not... Yeah, okay, 8,000 8, quid or whatever it is, is a lot of money to most people, but... Um, when you're smacking people about, if he'd, have been, if he'd had to go to court... I mean, I love... You know, the eloquent put-downs that he's had from Morbidelli. Morbidelli was just brilliant in every comment he's made. Anybody that's not seen it, look it up, find him on Twitter and so on and so forth. Morbidelli has made Alicia Spargo look an idiot, to be honest. He's made him look very silly. Um, uh, He's called into question his emotions and his actions and his previous actions. Well, you know, when I was reading all that, it's not... You know, it's not what you expect from somebody of Alicia Spargro's, well, perhaps from from where I said his character, because he's the man that's always at the safety briefings. He's the man that's always no. pushing for, he's Mr. Safety, isn't he? And and he should be, he's, he's, he is no, the think, oldest No, I think what that shows grid, is his right? emotions. I think what it shows mm-hmm. is that he's fiery, that he fires off, you know, like whether it be for safety or whether it be for the fact that he feels that there was some, you know, misdemeanor that um, Morbidelli performed just prior to when he started to... I mean, Morbidelli basically said, you know, calm. You know, he stuck his hand yeah. up and said, calm. And that's when he got a smack on the side of the head. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> there'll be a fair-sized faction of people listening to this watching uh, the, the, the coverage that was saying, yeah, more of that, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it, yeah, it was it was, a, it was a bad weekend for Alicia Spargo. Not only for that, of course, he, he, he is injured um, and that crash as well in the sprint affecting uh, Miguel Oliveira as well, who is now going to be out. He's not going to ride a bike until February next year, by the sounds of yeah, things. Yeah, that is, you know. And he's had a tough year when it comes to injuries. And that is... It could, you know, it's all but career-ending in these circumstances. I mean, we've seen it before with riders that have taken so long to come back and to miss Valencia, the Valencia test, and then have to wait until February test. Yeah, he'll be, he'll be hopefully fit again by the time we get back out there. But he's, he's luck. I don't know whether I'd get on an aeroplane with him. Let's put it that way. Well, we uh, we do wish Miguel Oliveira all the best and a speedy recovery. Um, now uh, we we've got a jam packed show today because we're going to be joined soon by uh, two uh, uh, members of Driven International, who are the circuit designers uh, we were telling you about in last week's show. But before we do that, I do want to touch on Moto Two and Moto Three, and I want to go straight, Keith, to Moto Three, please, because again, best, I mean, best race of the best race of the weekend by far. I mean, just. Yeah. outstanding a lot of pushing and shoving and again i'm actually surprised surprised yama masia he got a conduct warning you know mid-race but 
Blimey, he deserved probably a bit more than that. Well, and his teammate, no? Mm. Did, well, how did you how did you see all that? Because, of course, Jalen Messier wins the race and the title, but many on social media were calling that a dirty and unsafe Moto3 race. Unsafe, I'm not so sure. Um, dirty, definitely. I think that, you know, he took, he took Sasaki out, you know, intimidated him on two major occasions. You know, it's all very well getting it right. You know, you could argue both ways here. He ran him wide because he felt he was going to lose the front end um, into the corner. He'd gone in hot, so he ran him out wide, which was safer than trying to make the corner, slide off and knock him off. Um, but to do it as often, he'd interfere. There is, there is a rule in the rule book, you know, interfering with another rider's um, racing line. If you If you go back to... <laughs> 2015, the Mar Marquez versus Valentino Rossi at Sepang incident, where Rossi ran Mark Marquez out wide. Um, they tangled, and, and Mark Marquez fell down in that particular incident. It was only because of the cat-like reactions of Suzuki. Suzuki was on the best form. He was on top form. He, he could easily have won that race, and he ended up where he ended up, and the championship ended up going Messier's way. I mean, I'm not sure... World Championship's a World Championship. Messier isn't going to look back with any much regret on, on, on his moves. And he got away with it, so at the end of the day. Um, but you get the feeling that he should have had a penalty. I mean, I, I'd, if, if he'd done it to me, I'd have been wandering around to go and find his garage at the end of the day. It's one of them ones where, you know, it, it was dirty, in my view. Um, whether it was genuine, only Messier will know. But I don't suppose he felt too... I don't suppose he had too many regrets in letting the brakes off and running Sasaki out wide um, twice. And then, of course, like you say, his teammate getting involved as well. So it's a, it wasn't the way that you would want to see it end up, but we are where we are. Again, stewards, you know, don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I, f I feel like I'm sitting on the fence with this. Which I, don't I normally, think you are. Yeah, I, I don't normally do. I Personally, I think he should have got a penalty. He got a, he got a conduct warning, a conduct warning. What the frig is a conduct warning? I mean, I, I know they can give it, but it's like a... It's nothing. You might as well just keep your <laughs> mouth shut. That's <laughs> kind of... I think, I think, is it the fact that, you know, he went on to, to win the race and, and, of course, then got the title? So it, you, it's almost like he was rewarded for that, well, for I, that I, I kind think, of riding. I think what it is is that stewards and the like are, are, are obviously massively concerned with altering the course of a world title. Mm. You know, that that's a consideration they've got to have. They've got to see... Is this just hard racing and a couple of mistakes mid-race? Or is this kind of overly aggressive um, trying to intimidate your rival? And it was borderline that, in my view. Um, it was borderline intimidation. You know, he was prepared to do whatever he took to the man that was challenging him for the title. Um, we know Jaume Messier can be quite hard. Um, so Zaki's a bit more gentle. Um, but Sasaki had the pace to win that race this weekend. Um, we can all say that about just about half a dozen Moto3 riders, of course. Mm. But um, I, I think that the conduct warning was the most pathetic penalty I think I've heard of for, for some considerable time. Well, in the end, Jan Masir took the title with that win in Moto3. Uh, let's also just see off Moto2. Well, let's, two, let's just finish, we let's finish off Moto3 very quickly, can we? Chan Onchu, who jumped the start and okay. came through to a podium, um, was 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 a massive ride. I mean, that was, you know, he got top rack Razgatlioglu on, Keenan Sofoglu was on bloody the grid, you know. 
top rack going to BMW next year in World Superbike from Yamaha, former world champion. Bloody Keenan Safawaglu, multi-world champion. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on Dennis Onchu to do the business for Turkey. And then he goes and jumps the start. Goes to show you just what happens when you're a little bit nervous at the start. But a, a fantastic ride through a field like that to end up in third place for, for Dennis Onchu. So I think he must get a, a mention in dispatches. Absolutely a mention there. Fermin Ardegher, Moto2, wins that race. Three on the bounce for him. Gonzalez and Kanet behind. Agura fourth ahead of Dixon. What did you make of the Moto2? Well, race? I thought um, Dixon was unlucky to lose that fourth place, but he won't care. Fourth or fifth don't really count for much in Dixie's mind, I'm sure of that. Um, <laughs> you know, it, podium would have been nice, but uh, and he looked like he was up the second at one point. So Dixon, Dixon was on good form. I love the way Jake Dixon's riding at the moment. I mean, I... I love the way he's riding and I hate the way some people dump on him sometimes. I mean, Jake Dixon is right there. He's permanently a top six man. And, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where, you know, there is no criticism to go Jake Dixon's way. He is doing the business. He is right on the cusp of, of pulling something special off in Moto2 at the moment. So uh, maybe maybe later in MotoGP. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But um, I rate Dixon very highly. Um Sam Lowe's was was down to eighteenth, nineteenth at one point, and fought his way back up um, up the field. He he goes good at Qatar, so he'll be disappointed with that, of course. Um, Fermin Aldegar is the real deal, you know. Like he was imperious. There was no one that was in the same race as that kid. Um, he reminds me a little bit of James Toesland. I know this is, sounds a bit ridiculous, but he but that's me. Um, it, it reminds me of James Tozen, and he, he seems like an old man when you talk to him. He's, he's he kind of doesn't <laughs> seem like his age. He seems beyond his years when you talk to him. I always remember James Tozen when I spoke to him when, back when he was fifteen. Um, that uh, that that he was very similar, very serious man. Stood to attention when he spoke to you and shook your hand in a very polite manner. Fermin Aldegar has got that kind of feel to me. I don't know Fermin Aldegar because yeah, he's arrived when I've I've not been in the paddock. So. But I look forward to meeting him at some stage in the in the not too distant future. Um, talking to James Tozen, by the way, uh, we're going down the pub with James Tozen in a week or two. So um, look out on ONG podcast here because we're going to film it again, like we did with uh, Foggy. Um, so James Tozen down the pub with James Tozen, same place, Stirrup Cup. We, we do like a down the pub, and if you haven't checked out the Foggy episodes, do go and check those out on our YouTube channel right now. Make sure you're subscribed and all that jazz. Um, Look, before we welcome our circuit designers to the show, we go to Valencia. Uh, this is Peco Bagnaia's to lose now, isn't it? Yeah, but it has been lost before. Um, you know, Nicky Hayden pinched it off Valentino Rossi a few years ago, a lot, lot of years ago now. <laughs> um, it can be done. Of course, it only needs, you know, something along the lines of what happened in Catalonia, for instance, to, to Bagnaia. I mean, I'm, I, it, you know, Stranger things have happened, but I've got to say a 21-point lead with 37 points left on the table. Um, it looks like Magnaia is on, on his way now. The maturity of Peko, the way he rode, right up until he made that massive mistake, you know, where he nearly bloody threw the championship away. I mean, I, it was quite funny because they had the old heart monitor on Davide Tardozzi, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> and it was ticking along quite nicely. It's sort of 95, 100, 95, 100. It went, boink! <laughs> <laughs> And Paolo Giabatti, the um, you know Ducati bloody director of whatever he is, um, the old fellow, he's well in his seventies now. Paolo Giabatti is the smoothest, calmest Italian. He is the archetypical bloody you know Italian in motorsport. Even he looked really, really stressed over the weekend. I think that. 
The problem is, it's all very well saying it would have been a Ducati one way or the other, whether it was Jorge Martin or whether it was Agnaya who wins the, the championship. But the factory Ducati has got to win the title. It cannot be a satellite team. It was, you know, it, it just can't for, for the for the for the red red bikes. It's it's got to be that way. Well, we'll dive into more of that in uh, extra uh, a little later on this week to preview the final weekend of the year. Uh, but it, next up, we're going to be talking track design, circuit design, going from blueprints all the way to laying to tarmac. And to do that, we're joined by Ben Wilshire, Managing Director, and Gary Dern, Motorsport Operations Lead from Driven International. Well, welcome, Ben Wilshire, Managing Director, and Gary Dern, Motorsport Operations Lead from Driven International. Um, now, you're, you're internationally renowned designers, racetracks, responsible for the likes of the Mandalika, Indonesia circuit, Abu Dhabi, Yas Marina circuit modifications. I mean, going down your list, you know, Donington Park resurfacing, the Buddha International circuit, of course, for this year's uh, MotoGP, and more. Um, we really want to dive into to how that even starts, you know, from blueprint to, to laying of the tarmac. It's so fascinating. We have a lot of questions coming from our listeners who are who are so keen to, to see how this all works. But I suppose, first of all, Ben, if I come to you, tell us a bit about, about Driven and, and you know, the, the, the wider background. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, firstly, thanks for having us on. Uh, it's exciting to, to, to speak with you guys today. Um, yeah, Driven, we're... Um, you know, an architecture and engineering company, but very much specializing in um, racing circuits. So we cover everything from uh, everything from the design of the buildings, the paddock areas, even how you get in and out of the circuit. And then, of course, the track itself, whether that's designing a brand new track um, from scratch or whether it's um, upgrading a circuit um, or resurfacing a track like we did last year at Donington Park. So we cover the whole range, really, of, um, you know, design um, services, but but focus very much on racing circuits and proving grounds as well. So it's quite exciting, yeah, exciting and niche uh, job to have. That's for sure. You must have a crystal ball then, because the way things change over the years, decades, if you like, you know, it's a fairly permanent structure, um, a race circuit, and a massive investment for whoever it is that's that's putting the money up. Um, I mean, how do you? predict the future for instance if i can stick with bikes for the minute i mean obviously you've got a fair f1 uh harry's area which we'll go to in a moment but uh, i mean how do you work on something like for instance the the parameters that the bike guys like you know the runoffs into gravel the distance to the barriers you know the velocity of a motorcycle has changed hugely into a corner now with all the aero and all the bits and pieces that are now nailing the thing to the tarmac on the way in. They can now get into a corner faster than get out of a corner faster. How does that? How do you predict where it's all going to go? Yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge, um, particularly when you're designing a track that is going to be used for cars and bikes, like you say, um, and then just forecasting, you know, what might happen in the future. I mean, usually we work very closely with the governing bodies. That's the first step. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot to the FIA and FIM about, okay, what's coming up in the future with ready regulation changes on circuits or even with the cars and bikes that we need to be aware of um, that might affect the track design. And then also um, it's really, you know, liaising with the, the track owners. You know, what are they trying to achieve? For example, you know, a lot of the circuits, they make their day-to-day -day money from doing track days. Um, are they running more bike track days? Are they running more car track days? And ultimately, what events do they want to host? So 
for example, when we did the modifications at Abu Dhabi, that was very much driven by improving the Formula One experience. But we had to make sure that it worked for their corporate customers as well on a day-to-day basis. Otherwise, we would have ruined their day-to-day business. But, you know, we would have spoken at the time to Abu Dhabi about, okay, do you want us to think about MotoGP? Do you want us to think about bike track days? And then you have to embed that in your design. And kind of the worst case scenario for us or the most challenging scenario for us, honestly, is when they say, okay, we want to have, you know, have everything because we're then into a compromised situation. You have to balance, you know, the amount of asphalt gravel and gravel runoff ratio. Um, and the big, the big topic is always curbs as well. You know, what, what might be acceptable in a car is, is not necessarily acceptable on a bike. So we get into a lot more detail on these types of things, but, um, yeah, it's really liaising with the regulators and and the and the circuit owners to understand what they want to use the trap for ultimately. Um, so Gary, I'm curious because you mentioned just off air as well that, that you were down on the ground in in India for the for the Buddha International Circuit remodification rebuild to come onto the MotoGP calendar this year. I'm curious as to how that even starts because. I imagine the scenario is a bit different when the track is already there. You know, it was used for Formula One not too long ago. So how does that conversation even begin? Well, first of all, obviously, as Ben was saying earlier, it starts off with the design. So with the client approaching us, we start start looking at the design. We we view Google Earth and things like that uh, to, to get some background, some reference information. Um, that's uh, unless we actually get brought in to do a complete scan of the whole the whole venue so the design's the first element for us but once we get get on the ground it's then actually reviewing the actual as built in relation to what our design design is um so for instance when we hit the ground at bud international circuit bear in mind last formula one race was 2013 we we was experiencing you know uh, astroturf runoff uh, behind the verges for formula one which you know disappeared a number of years ago so that was a change. We knew we had to install um, some curbs, but we didn't appreciate the length of time it would be to remove AstroTurf. And it's actually the first part of it is reviewing what our what our design is in relation to as built. You know, one of the big changes at Bud was the pit lane entrance, and we managed to, through sort of use of time and inspecting of the circuit, we swapped out guardrail that was on the entrance of the pit lane for Formula One for concrete sectional barriers that was on the exit of turn, what is turn two, um, or entrance to turn two at Bud. So we managed to utilize, you know, the the equipment that was already there to, to achieve the end result in a more efficient time. So it is, you know, from a from an operations perspective, and that's where my background comes from, from multiple circuits, is actually seeing on the ground how a design fits, how we can utilize some of the existing transition it across but make it efficient for the operator once we've completed their changes like any building project though they're always over budget i mean at the end of the day it's a situation that trying to budget for something as huge as modifying a track or even building a new one yeah it must be a nightmare to try and get that right and if i can combine that with a question on materials and local contractors yeah we've seen so many times that that hasn't worked out. I mean, we can go to the Silverstone debacle if you want to keep it close to home. You know, they resurfaced the entire place for some three and a half million quid or whatever it was, where most contractors that, that 
were involved in the end turned around and said, well, it should have been five million quid for the size of the place. I mean, they hadn't ended up having to resurface that twice. We've had Sepang where Sepang was resurfaced at one point and they ran out of the local mix or whatever it was and we ended up with half the front straight in one mix and the other half it's slightly different. So you've got not just the, the sun being blocked out by the, you know, the, the, the grandstand, which makes a difference to grip on one half of the track. It also got two different types of tarmac at one point. I mean, these must be nightmares for, for a company like yours to try and keep under control. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely the sort of thing that can keep you awake at night, that's for sure, in terms of, you know, the, the risks of things going wrong. Um, I mean, speaking about what we did at Bird, and actually also um, Gas Marina as well, um, but in particular at Bird, we, we had... Um, what we did there is we had, you know, a selection process for contractors. So, and the same as at Donington Park as well with the resurfacing. So we actually write, you know, a very tight spec at the beginning. And then we work with the, the client to go out and find contractors. We'll do like reviews on their technical specs. We're even looking at like what paving equipment they've got, who they're going to use to do the paving in terms of like the operators. Then we can work out if we need to bring in some extra people to do training with them. Um, before we do, like if we're talking about resurfacing, for example, before we did the paving at Bird, we actually had trial areas in the in the back of the paddock and access roads where we said, we, we sort of insisted, right, you need to show us that you can do this and practice and practice and practice it. And Gary and I and my colleague Keegan, who's a civil engineer, we were there doing all the checks, um, getting all the lab data back. So for us, it's about all the preparation that goes into it beforehand. Like we, we have to make sure there's a really tight spec contractor understands what they're doing. And then we have to, you know, get them to practice in front of us basically before they let loose on the track. Um, and that's proven to be quite a good way of doing things. You know, even at Donington, we did the same with fairly experienced contractors here in the UK versus then training. You know, in India, we were working with a local contractor, a local construction company. They're not experts in racetracks, but we were able to go and train them and show them like what was needed and how to do things. And it's interesting, like, for example, we changed uh, a lot of the verges and curbs in Bud. And, um, you know, the first one you do is always very difficult, takes much longer. And then like the local laborers who don't, you know, don't speak any English, honestly, we have to like, they, you can see that they're starting to learn and you're, we're on the ground, like training them and showing them how to do it. And you can see like after the first one, okay, I'll get this now. And, um, and we're just there to supervise the quality. So that's an it can be done. It can be done if you train them properly. Yeah. It's an interesting point you pick up there, Ben. Isn't it? It's like when we, when we extended term one for the runoff, um, you start off with a hundred mil drop off, <clears throat> excuse me, into the, into the gravel bed. And then it drops down to two, uh, 25 centimeters. Now, to try and explain that to a local contractor that you need to set the gradient on a on a milling machine to come down, they don't necessarily understand it. Well, why why am I doing that? I need to do it flat. That's how you lay tarmac, isn't it? But we was trying to get the depth to meet up with an existing gravel bed to extend it, especially at Term 1, you know, multiple yeah. areas at, at Bud International Circuit. And then before you start laying the geotextile, so, so the gravel doesn't sink into the ground and then it maintains it ready to... Um, you know, arrest the bike if anyone should go into, you know, go off into that area. But uh, as we also know, with bikes generally, they're at such an angle when they come into, or especially on the, the apex of a corner, if, if someone like Mark Marquez is doing his, his traditional sort of lay the bike down as low as he can and it goes away from him, the first thing a bike's going to do is start 
catapulting. And where does that bike end up? You know, and there's no law of physics that actually says, well, it's going at this angle, at this speed, at that trajectory. So that's where the design process working with FIM actually builds all of that in so we can try and understand, you know, all the energies that's in there, the height of the debris fence, the depth of the runoff, the 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 barriers that's in there, the air pro, uh, the tech pro barrier for cars or the, the air fencing that's in there just to actually, you know, arrest the bike, but also the rider. You've also got one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss situation that must come into mind quite often because with weather changes that we've been having over the last 10 years have been quite severe and at some of the tracks that we go to drainage is you know once the grass is sodden and full of water and it's not running off and it's not soaking in anymore you know from a track design point of view trying to get rid of the thousands of gallons of water that you get on some of the corners um, that must be a tricky one. Is that all designed in as well? I mean, how do you manage that on an existing track, for instance? I mean, it must be a nightmare. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a big consideration. So, um, like on the drainage, so we, we have our civil engineers here that actually run, you know, software to work out. Okay, if we get this this many inches of rainfall um, in an hour, they can simulate that on the computer, and it sort of shows all the low spots on the track and where you might start to get some pooling. Um, Obviously, then reality can be somewhat different if there's a slight imperfection in what's been built that's different to the computer model. So Abu Dhabi, actually, and you know, we, when we did the Formula One modifications, obviously it's not raining there a lot at all. And the problem is that some of the drainage systems can get clogged up with sand and things. But what we did there, they actually flooded the track. It was part of our part of our deliverable was to demonstrate that the drainage was working. So we actually had after the track was done. They bought a huge water bowser and flooded the track and tested all the drainage, um, and thankfully it, it did what it was it was meant to do. But that was that was definitely a bit of a moment for me. Stood there thinking, okay, now it needs to, you know, let's hope this drains away. But we always have, like on a racetrack, all of your cross falls going to the inside of the corners normally. So you've you know what we what what we tried to do is generally catch the water from any paved runoff areas before it gets onto the track. And then on the inside of the circuit as well. And we use, um, you've probably seen them, like drains, these very narrow drains. And there's some quite specialist products now, specialist suppliers that we work with as well to, to fit them. Um, but installing it is tricky on a new circuit because you have to make sure the levels, are, you, know, you don't have a drain poking up or a sharp edge or anything like this. Um, so on a new circuit, it's actually you know, easier for us to design. On an existing track, like a bird, we did find, you know, we did have to go around and, um, 
we were making modifications. We had to check the modifications that we were making weren't going to adversely affect the drainage, which was a bigger problem there because that, I mean, it was raining almost every day. We were coming off the back of the monsoon season. So luckily we were able to spot where there was like small streams or rivers starting to form across the track and we could address them. Um, oh, well, we did find one problem, didn't we? Turn two, for instance, we actually extended the verge behind the back of the curb. And, and by doing that, it actually generated a low point, which gave us a puddle. Um, which which we only see you know after it had been finished one night and we arrived back at the circuit the next morning to find this lovely puddle sitting behind the curb or behind the merge, which obviously was a problem. So we had to install an additional French drain behind there and that resolved it quite easily. I'll tell you the bigger problem though, Keith, with the, well, not bigger problem, but another problem that don't, people don't realise is the gravel traps. You can end up with gra- um, gravel floating in, in water if you're not careful. Um so actually all the drainage under the gravel traps was, you know, something we really had to keep an eye on, uh, particularly in, in India. Um, and I have to give a big credit actually to Loris uh, Caparossi from, from FIM. You were asking earlier about like working with the local teams and, and, and it's reminded me of the gravel beds. Loris um, was with us. He was out there raking the gravel beds with us the week before the race, training the locals, you know, with the rake, showing them how to do it, you know, Really got his uh, really got his hands dirty with our team and and like showed all the locals how how to do all these gravel beds and, and yeah. curbs and things. So it was really really good experience to see like the FIM and um, all of their safety team being so hands on with with training up the locals with us. It's amusing me because I'm just trying to think of a, can I think of a four wheel world champion that's got a gravel rake in his hand to help the track I, designers? Yeah. Probably not, <laughs> but you know you have to give full credit to them for doing it. It's absolutely incredible that you know and the experience they bring as well. So yeah, it was good to see. Let me let me ask you another question. We talked about uh, the modifications at Donington Park, and I'm, I'm sorry to make the comparisons between Silverson and Donington. I know Silverson you didn't have anything to do with that was that was a completely separate contract with a completely separate bunch of people. But Donington obviously had that trepid. I mean Jonathan Palmer. I know Jonathan Palmer reasonably well because we raced in the same team. Years and years and years ago, him in Formula One, me in 500. So I've known Jono for a long time. And I, I, I teased him when I was up at Donington the first time they ran on that track that you'd, you'd obviously smoothed it out. And I was I was teasing. I, I said, no, I only put the bumps in the same place. I didn't know Driven at that time. I said, I only put the bumps in the same place because the amount of tracks that I've raced on that has been resurfaced and the bump is exactly where it still is. <laughs> and, and it seemed like whenever a, a new surface was laid down, um, you would end up with the same kind of characteristics um, as before. Um, things have obviously, obviously moved on a bit since then because Donington was like a billiard table and there was, you know, got grip, it got everything they wanted. And, and there wasn't one rider complaint in the weekend that I was there when we first ran on it at British Superbikes after you guys had um, sorted it all out. And it needed doing because obviously the 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 guy that wanted to run Formula One from there, I forget his name now, Brown Shoes, bit of a con artist, ended up um, digging half the track up and then running away um, and leaving it back to um, the guys to sort out at a later stage. But the track itself came out really, really well. How can it be that 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 you've got it so right compared with how Silverstone got it so wrong. What 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 was the differences there? How did yeah. that work out? And this isn't yeah, it's a really good question. And this is not just a comparison with with Silverstone or other because obviously the Silverstone one has now been rectified as well, and um, and it's you know it's the same all over. So you're absolutely right. If you resurface 
any road and you just basically you know planing off um you know a, a certain amount of material and then putting back you will naturally get back this similar profile right that, that was there before um what we tend to do on a lot of the resurfacing jobs and this is now becoming more common with race circuits the bumps are always a big talking point with particularly in motorcycle world with the riders and the riders have got such a voice now in the press around you know feeling of the bumps even if there's no real data behind it if they feel something and they vocalize it then then that definitely comes back to us so we um with donnington and uh other projects we're now using some technology where we're actually creating a new profile so rather than just milling away the surface that's already there we actually mill away and complete com can create a brand new flat surface and there's technology now that exists that allows us to vary the depth of the milling so as the machine goes along it can mill off 20 millimeters 25 millimeters 40 millimeters so it can basically skim off the bumps it's a huge essentially a huge cnc machine um and that's what we design so we scan the surface we see where the bumps are and then we create this variable depth milling um, profile and that's really how we've achieved getting rid of the bumps at Donington. And I heard some feedback from the riders, I think, coming to the final hairpin. Um, there were some big bumps there before that were, they were struggling to break, whereas now they're gone and uh, the, the lap times have come down, you know, as well as having a new surface and new grip as well. Um, so that's how we've achieved it. And that's sort of, you know, the design process we go through is, is to eliminate the bumps and give the smoothest profile we can. Um, the big challenge you have, though, on... on resurfacing older tracks is that they have a lot of character to them so for example with donnington it's not got a consistent slope like we said earlier it's actually got a crown in the middle of the track so you then you need to decide okay you're going to get rid of that you're going to keep it and jonathan um palmer want really was like quite quite insistent on on keeping the character of donnington park which i think we would all agree is a good a good decision um such a heritage track you don't want to you know modern over modernize it so um, keeping some of those crests and folds in the track in the same way was important to him. The challenge uh, you have on these, though, is that then you've got to tie in all your new paving to all the curbs as well. And if you've got curbs that are older, so the problem can, you know, the, the project can quickly grow legs. You start to resurface the track, then you can end up, you know, building new curbs and you end up building new runoffs. So we always have to limit, okay, what, what are we working to? What are the tolerances? And then we just all had an agreement across the team what we're trying to do. But yeah, that's the, the bump issue is um, is resolved by some some new technology that we're using, which is which is exciting that we can do it. Do you ever do you ever get a, a bit of a smile when you see the way other people have gone about their jobs? I mean, there are obviously one or two firms around. I mean, I'm thinking the Dromo who did a modification at Sepang that that the riders from our perspective, hated to start with, although they've all settled down to it now. The final corner, because that used to flood on the inside, the camber is naturally towards the right. inside of a corner, they turned it a metre outwards. So the water went out towards the gravel trap, which gave, they said, um, two or three different lines. Well, it might have done for a Formula One car, but um, for, a, for a motorcycle, <laughs> we've never had such an adverse camber in all our lives. <laughs> I mean, do you ever look in and think, I'd have done that different? I think, you know, every designer's got their own view on things. Um, you know, you ask 100 people, they might come up with 100 different ways of doing something. Um, like, of course, you want to do a good job. I think we just focus on for us doing a good job and looking at the work we've done. 
Um, but we're always studying what other people are doing like, and why they've done it. Like, okay, what's the rationale? What's the thought process? What's the feedback? Because you want to be able to like learn from what's going on in the industry. So, but of course, you know, we, we always like to see um, good feedback on our projects. So we're always looking like online at what the riders say, what the commentators are saying. It's a big part of it because it's obviously vocalized across the globe. Um, so yeah, commentators don't know anything. <laughs> it's interesting when you hear the commentators as well because, like, we know, like, we have the full context of everything that's gone on on the project from day one, like, of what could or couldn't be done, um, and all the little constraints, like, why we can't, you know, back a corner more, or like, for example, why that corner was negative count. There would have been a reason behind it and a thought process. So it's interesting. No one really, like, quite frankly, probably cares about that or knows about it. So they only care what the riders think at the end of the day. And that's what we have. That's what I always have to think in back of my mind. No one's going to go, oh, well, that was done because of X, Y, and Z. All we know is that when the riders get out there, we want them to enjoy it. And that, uh, that's kind of, if you take that approach, I think you, if you think with that mindset, it's probably not a bad way to think about it. And I think, I think part from our job on, on the bud circuit, we help feed information back into the riders. So for instance, as we know, there was a, there was a couple of outspoken riders, concerns of going to India. Um, and we met with the FIM to do an, an inspection and, and they wanted to do more. But from a driven perspective, we got back out to back out to the track early. We decided decided to start doing, you know, daily conference calls with them. But as part of that process, we actually started using a drone just in a follow me process. So we was giving them daily updates on the work that was happening, how things were progressing then uh, Loris and Tom A could actually review those, feed information back to us on things they felt still needed attention. We could give them daily updates on what work was happening through the day because obviously the time different. But then actually one of the videos that we presented, they showed to the riders in one of their, one of their meetings. So it actually it gave a bit of confidence to the riders that it wasn't, shall we say, media talk that that they'd, they'd seen no sight of what the circuit was. It, it allayed some of their concerns. So we were trying to work as part of part of that process to allay any concerns and actually give them a bit of confidence that when they arrived at the track, they weren't going to find some, you know, some scary things that would upset them. Riders are an emotive bunch. There's no doubt about it. And um, now they've got a riders union coming for next year. That could be a bone of contention <laughs> here and there. But I, <clears throat> it's happened on many racetracks. I mean, Thai, the, the, the you know, Chang International was one that, that riders weren't particularly, I think Valentino Rossi was quite vociferous about not going there. Didn't see the point in going there. Didn't understand the reasons for going there. That was, yeah, not so much to do with the track as the location, I think, as, as that goes. But I mean... Riders do appreciate that that connectivity, and, and moving it into the the more you know shallow side of things, commentators really appreciate a connection with you guys. There's no doubt in my mind that when you know when I was commentating on on MotoGP, I would really have appreciated a connection with the people directly involved in producing the the, the track and the, and the nuances surrounding that and why that was like it. It's like everything else, isn't it? Social media nowadays. We've had an instance with Peko Bangaya who picked up on something that I'd said that um, earlier on in the year where, where it was just, it was a headline, it was a clickbait type headline and basically Peko had read that but hadn't looked at the context, hadn't, hadn't looked at the, the podcast itself. And I would imagine it's a similar thing in a much more uh, uh, substantial way as to what you guys do. The, the, the lack of understanding in what you are actually doing um, 
and people pick on the tiniest little well, I won't say fault, but little nuance, little little difference that there is, a transition to curb or whatever it might be. But uh, I think a, a, an understanding would be um, much better from a commentary point of view ben, as well. We might be more sympathetic to the odd bump then. I think Ben picked up on that earlier, uh, Keith, and and you're right. You know, it, some of our circuit designs, there's multiple designs going to a corner before you actually get to the, the final result. Um, and we found that with Bird. There was... There was a number of corners that we came up with multiple configurations. And by the time you run the simulations, you actually looked at what was on the ground, you know, and then it comes into the budget, as you mentioned earlier. You start looking at ways to actually achieve the the target objective of, you know, good close racing, you know, safe racing or safe an environment for the racing to happen. So some of that some of that information coming into a commentator gives the bigger picture for the fan base as well doesn't it they understand why things are changed certain way and and potentially stops the negative you know um keyboard warriors as we say you know to you know to attack a certain situation not everything's right you know and as i think ben mentioned earlier you know there's there's some circuits we look at and think okay that's an interesting one how can how can we improve on that for our next designs like with bid, with bid for example, is a good example. Uh, you know, good one to to pick up. Like you would have seen a lot of the corners were narrowed with with painted um, curbs. So in an ideal world, if we'd had more time and more budget, to your point earlier, Keith, we might have built new corners um, specifically for MotoGP, but it just wasn't practical. And that might be something that's done in the longer term. You know, with the with the championship going there for many years, um, you know, we may look at making more improvements as the track. You know continues to host the the championship but like year one with the time that we had and the budget was in place and to get the race ready doing the narrowing worked for reducing the speeds and i think it looked it looked good on television as well i think all the riders liked it it was something that we were really like thinking probably overthinking to be honest and um it would be good you know talking to the commentators and stuff to explain all the motions that have gone through because it makes your job more informative as well to the audience so we could use you know turn 12 as an example you know turn 12 it from a formula one car the the safety guardrail on the left hand side pinched the track a bit narrower which wasn't ideal for bikes so when we when we first looked at that the intention was to reprofile the corner push the barriers a long way back but by doing that meant we needed to relocate the grandstand build a new extended bund because all of bud is actually on reclaimed land and raised raised ground so it's a, a thing called cut and fill and it's all fill there so we would have needed to move the grandstand increase the bund move the service road move the barrier back um but actually by pinching a bit of the service road to gain another four meters reprofiling part of the gravel bed and using the as as was said you know the the red bull ring style of track painting we managed to achieve the the objective that we was all after, and that was a later apex, tighten the riders up a bit more because we didn't want to increase the speed going into the last corner. So was that the ideal solution? No, but budget and simulations allowed us to achieve that by the by the actions that we took. What about long lap penalties? Because we had a lot of uh, questions coming on this, like a yeah. lot. So this is speaking for quite a few people that were tuned in. You know, is there much consideration uh, around that to try and keep it, 
uniform within the calendar of tracks? Why is it one and a half seconds for one track and maybe up to three seconds for another track? That's a great question. So to be honest, it's usually where, where it's safe to do. So for example, like a bird, what we're looking for there is a large runoff area or somewhere on the side of the track where you can come off, you know, you need it to be almost, you need to be thinking of it like a pit lane almost that you need to be offline coming into it and, you know, coming, coming into the penalty loop and then back out again. So you're not kind of rejoining in traffic or on the racing line. So you're kind of creating a, a, almost like a pit lane, but within the track. Um, so it really comes down to where, where can you put it? Um, like at, at Bud, for example, uh, we've got one of the longest straights on the calendar, the back straight. There's actually a you know decent size asphalt runoff area right at the end of it. So in theory, you could have put the long lap penalty there, but I don't think anyone would have thanked us for it because you've got riders braking hard on the racing line, you know, from very very high speed, and then they've been rejoining on the racing line. And then there was pretty limited areas where you could put it. You know, you're either onto grass or gravel at that point if you if you go off the track anywhere else. So um but we ended up on the outside of turn three it was a much lower speed hairpin people could come off the racing line back out and so it's really a, a really is just where we can put it mandalika we had it on the outside of a corner as well it was kind of off the racing line slow speed and they're able to rejoin that's that's really the the process we go through is where where it's safe to put it i think is, is the main driver for that rather than which bring- make it like a consistent you know consistent speed for every track which brings me to that bone of contention of pit lane exits and stuff like that into fast corners. You know, when you've got tracks that have been on the calendar for years and years, you must wince at where some of these exits and entries to pit lane are placed. I'm thinking, in my I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking Phillip Island. There's not much you can do with a place in a conservation area like that anyway, which is another, <laughs> another area that we probably shouldn't go to when it comes to the government um, saying what you can and can't do, like Laguna and Phillip Island and and places like that but that coming out around the outside of a massively fast corner Duan's corner at somewhere like Phillip Island and we've seen it before when a bike comes off and wipes out someone who's coming out of pit lane I mean when you look at a track do you do you when you're refurbing a track do you look at it and think to yourself we've got to try and change this we've got to try and persuade these guys to put the pit complex on the other side of the track to to get it to work yeah so uh, my philosophy, rightly or wrongly, is that if we're designing a brand new track, we always try where possible to put the pit lane so that you end up with a racing line like on the other side to the pit wall. So it gives people enough, you know, keeps, keeps the bikes and cars far, as far away from the pit wall as possible. Um, obviously, that's not always not always uh, practical. So Mandalika, actually, a story around there, if you, know, if you know the track layout, you'll know that the pit lane does come in on the outside of turn one. We actually, at one point, had the whole paddock complex on the infield, the track, which is like more traditional. But at the time that we were planning that venue and designing it, the land wasn't available. They didn't own the land. So it was impossible to do it. And we even had sketches, you know, I have to dig them out, actually, the, the pit lane on the on the infield. Um, but if you notice on that track still, you know, you come, you come into the pits offline, it directs the riders away from the racing line. I think when you have something where you've got the pit lane coming in, like at Mandalika and Donington is a good example as well, where it kind of rejoins on the, you know, you know, near to the racing line. We always try to just give as much visibility as possible as if you're kind of joining a motorway type philosophy. Um, but it's always a headache. It's always a headache for us. And that actually is something that's 
like if we're designing a new track, it's one of the very first things we look at is where do you put your paddock? Because you can't put your paddock on the side of a hill. So you're always looking for a flat area. So that decides where your paddock goes. That decides where your start finish straight goes. And then from there, you've kind of got your pit lane design. So it's, um, yeah, you hit on a good point. It's, it's, it's always a bit of a headache for us. Can I, can I just follow? I see Harry that was ready to jump in on me there. But I just want to go to... So the, the, the bone of contention that we have here in the UK mostly is just when you've got the perfect design and materials and everything sorted out and you think, yes, I've nailed this. And then you get some shiny bum polishing up his chair in the planning office at the local authority that want to um, completely upset the, 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 this wonderful design you've got. Do you find that around the world as well? Is it, is it something that's, 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 that we have just here in the UK or do you have planning offices in every other country as well that are always trying to interfere with your design? It's a good question. I would say in the UK, actually, funnily enough, it's like because of the planning system we have here, everything's actually pretty clear from the outset. Like a lot of the planning hurdles, we usually, you know, knock down a lot of the yellow flags or red flags pretty early on because you know, you know, you know if a piece of land is classified as like protected or you know if something's a heritage asset. So you can kind of work through that quite well in the UK and then have like consultation period. In other countries around the world, it's less formalized. Um, we've been doing a lot of street circuits in India at the moment. And the amount of design changes we're making kind of like reactively because there's there's something with like a road that we can't use or we can't knock down a curbstone or something like that. So I would say less in the UK, but some other countries overseas where there's probably less formalized planning systems we we have a big reaction to it and that that can cause like quite late design changes which is um you know you just have to you just have to accept that it's part of the process and go through it but it definitely can be a big yeah big hurdle for us to cross that's for sure i think the bit the bit that we do find though is once the circuit's designed it's more when it comes into the operational phase so when you actually start putting events on the actual government agencies that you need to jump through hoops for to actually make sure that you can have road closures so you can have traffic coming in, traffic coming out, you know, what's your evacuation plan. That's when things start changing in different countries, whereas obviously the UK is a bit more used to doing large-scale events and, you know, safety security plans and things like that. During the big, the biggest headache for us, honestly, Keith, if, is, if we had something approved by the FIM or FIA and then we get on the ground and they say, can you change it? Like we need to pull the runoff area back by two meters. Obviously, that's a safety issue. So we're there saying, "Well, hold on a minute. The design's already been approved and signed off by the FIM, and now we want to change it." That's that's when it gets difficult because they're then back into like reprocessing, you know, and reevaluating the design on the ground. So yeah, it's it's a challenge for sure. But you just it's a bit more complex than I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, you just have to be able to adapt. I mean, it's. Some people don't like changes in life, but we, we have to get used to it, I think, sometimes uh, with what we do. One thing- what was, um, so just to, to go, because we talked a lot about redesigning tracks, and you mentioned Mandalika there, which is obviously something you, you designed fully. What was the brief for that when you were first given it? So we worked very closely um, with uh, Mark One Consulting, Mark Hughes, who operates a lot of venues around the world. Um, really, really good guy to work with. We And he... Um, He'd been involved in the project um, initially, like just looking at the brief. So the Mandalika circuit is actually designed as a ring road for the resort, believe it or not. So there was already a, like there was already a road planned. And and if you look at Mandalika now, like the whole island of Lombok, in particular area, Akuta Beach and, and all along there, there's more hotels popping up. 
And so the circuit was already, there was already this idea that we're going to have this road around the, you know, around the resort. And the idea was, well, why don't we, it could be a street track, it could be a street race, um, you know, in kind of like pictures of Monaco and things like this flashing, Singapore flashing um, through people's heads. Obviously, you know, MotoGP, you're not going to get away with doing that without having the walls right up against the track. So we, uh, we drove, the track design was derived from the street road. Yeah, that's where it came from, really. And we had some flexibility to sort of change bits so some land passes we could use or couldn't use. But that's really where it came from initially. Um, and it was kind of, you know, I think even nowadays, um, still the track is called Streets, Mandalika Street Circuit, I believe, International Street Circuit, unless I'm mistaken. So it was designed as a street circuit. And then the one thing that we had to flag and had raised concerns on was, well, you know, if it becomes a true street circuit, you're going to get people driving all over it all the way around the year. And then again, you get little spillages, bumps, you know, all sorts of other things that keep occurring. So the service road in Mandalika, which goes all the way around the edge of the track, is now actually, that is now used as the resort road, um, or, or could be. And we made it like a two-way road. So the, the barrier in the middle can be moved back and it splits and you end up with a two-way service road and it means the track is protected. But that's how that came about. So the brief was, you need to stick to this kind of route that we've got, but you can have freedom to design corners and stuff within within that that route. So um, when I first looked at it, honestly, I thought this is, you know, this is going to be difficult to make happen, uh, especially with all the hills there as well that we had to work around. But it looks, yeah, it's come out really cool. I think it's one of the nicer layouts on the calendar, I think. You talked about sleepless nights earlier on. Bloody hell, I can imagine. It must be in the middle of the night when you wake up suddenly with a problem that's been in your head for the week and all of a sudden you wake up with a solution. It must feel like Eureka. Yeah, it's nice. And like what's nice for us as well is when things start to click in place and you, you tick off, like said, some of these yellow flags or red flags. Okay, you know you can't use that land, so let's not even think about that idea anymore. Or um, you know, and, and then also we put things on the simulator, Keith, as well. Um, so even just dri- like we will drive a lot of the motorcycle tracks on the simulator, which you might cringe at, but we actually drive them in single seaters and kind of just get a feeling. So that that cements a lot of our ideas as well. You start to put a d- bit of data behind it on a simulator, and you can actually drive it at one to one scale. It definitely helps you sleep better at night. <laughs> it sounds it sounds like an awful job. I to know. Have, yeah, yeah. Awful, yeah. I've been playing games all day. Yeah. <laughs> we were saying about some of the you know parcels of lands of what you've got, and you know the the uh, specification, the brief, what you're building to to start depends on what what you're looking to run there and what their future expectations are. So if if you get the brief straight away that it's going to be F1 or MotoGP, you know immediately X amount of garages, size of race control. Or, Specification of race control, medical center, you know, two helipads, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of your land is taken up before you even start considering. And that's where Ben was saying, you know, what's the flattest piece of land? Does that work? Do we need to start doing a lot of excavation work to make that flat piece for the paddock? You know, is it going to be a European race? So you've got, you know, Moto Moto two, Moto three going in there. Is it going to be F one that's got Porsche, Super Cup, F three, F two? So, you know, there's a lot of land immediately taken before you start coming up with length of straight, tightness of corner for term one, et cetera, et cetera. We, we get, uh, honestly, we get a lot of inquiries for new projects, for new tracks where, um, you know, a client will say, oh, we want to have a Formula One track or a MotoGP track. And then we have to go through the process of really understanding, well, do, do you 
want to host Reds GP? Do you really want to host Formula One or actually do you just want to have like track days? Because as you know, it affects the track design a lot, you know, much bigger track, much bigger runoff areas, bigger buildings. So we do a lot of club tracks here as well that are not hosting these larger events and it changes the track design really massively and the budget as well. So And the safety element, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, we said about, you know, the F1 to MotoGP, the, the space required for tarmac or asphalt runoff in relation to gravel, whether it's Tech Pro barriers or whether that Tech Pro comes out because you're not running F1 and you're putting air fencing in, you know, whether it's type A, type C, etc. you know, distance of debris fencing, intervention gaps for all your marshals, everything changes. Um, and that's where you need to, that's where, I, you know, I'm I'm working well and supporting with Driven to actually identify some of the operational issues of how does a, a marshal use an intervention gap to, the, to get to a point where a bike may fall or where a car may impact that ch- that is totally different to what a bike a- bike approaches yeah now um, we're rapidly running out of time i feel like we could we could talk to you for ages i just want to get through a couple of the questions that have come in from some of our listeners martin has asked now this might be totally bonkers but could you design a track that cars for example run one way and bikes run in the opposite direction having the barriers when they need them you could in theory. Uh, <laughs> so the biggest issue we have, and it's not just whether it's cars or bikes going the other way, it's that it's all well, it's two things that stop it normally from a practical perspective is obviously all the runoff areas are designed, you know, on the outside of a corner. So if you've got a 90 degree bend, you're going to have runoff area in one direction. But if you want to run that two ways, all of a sudden you've got the, you know, runoff area will du- double the runoff area. Um, some corners it's not an issue, but that, you know, on 90 degree bends, it would be. You would uh, to use Armco, but the uh, yeah, that's the that's the biggest thing is that I overlap. So Armco, um, the guardrail, the way it's all bolted together, is overlapped in the direction of travel. So the only way you'd be able to do it is with concrete walls where you've got a completely small surface. But even then, you would need to have all the martial overlaps um, reconfigured. So look, you could do it. Would it be practical? Probably not. Um, <laughs> but you, there's no reason why you couldn't design it in a in an ideal world. Yeah. Um, no. Nobody. Nobody cared when they ran the Hutchinson Hundred around Brands Hatch the opposite way around. <laughs> a few videos and circuits being used in reverse direction. So, and then you've got things like all your curbs. You know, your curbs are certain direction for all your positive curbs, all your signage, your lights, your pit lane entry and exit, your garages. You know, race control. So, when you start to unpick it, it becomes yeah. We get asked that a lot. Can we run both directions? And the answer is well. In theory, we could do it, but we probably wouldn't advise it. Well, yeah, there's your there's your question answered, Martin. Um, and and so, and so for for driven, obviously you've got a, a a bunch of projects you're working on. You know what what does the future hold? What what are you excited about? What can you tell us at the moment that you're working on for the future? Um, well, yeah, no, it's been a really exciting um, few years for us. I think since we did the Abu Dhabi upgrades in 2021, that project's really um, helped elevate our profile a bit more and. We're becoming involved generally with some bigger projects in terms of like MotoGP and um, and Formula One, which is really exciting. So we're hoping to make, you know, be involved with the circuit longer term to continue making progress there and updates as as the track evolves and as the event continues. Um, we've got some we've we've got some really cool tracks opening in India next year, um, which I think uh, may get used for bike racing of some sort whether that's local or international still to be determined and then we're doing a lot of club circuits in america so like country club concepts where 
people can come and like store their bikes or cars and have kind of like a long weekend there so like the golf course type thing that that's very very popular at the moment so um being located in england is quite handy at the moment because it's america and india seem to be the two areas where we're working a lot um but yeah we'll we'll um we'll have to keep you guys posted as and when we get more and more uh, projects coming online absolutely i mean it's, it's it's been fascinating and i know there's there's still a lot more we could talk about but uh you, you're gonna join us uh for, for extra as well to have a little look at, at valencia the final round of moto gp but um for now ben gary from driven international thank you so much for for joining us on the show thank you very much thank you good to speak with you even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.